Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting November 20th, 2015, we turn again to the migrant crisis in Europe, now with an overlay of terrorism. Journalist, photographer, and World Policy Institute senior fellow Damaso Reyes wrote about it for the World Policy blog. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ fall issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. The principal question in the aftermath of the Paris terror attacks, is the war against ISIS being won or not? Criticism of President Obama has increased since the massacre in the French capital, and this is the general theme, that Obama's handling of ISIS, which he once compared to a junior varsity sports team, is not working, and that America needs to send in ground troops or at least establish a no-fly zone or safety zone to help Syrian civilians. But the president continues to say no. This is an example of the kind of issue where I will sit down with our top military uh, and intelligence advisors and we will painstakingly go through what does something like that look like. And typically, after we've gone through a lot of planning and a lot of discussion and really working it through, it is determined that it would be counterproductive to take those steps. Obama says the U.S. could go in and take any territory at once. The real issue, though, he says, is ending the underlying conditions that create terrorism in the first place. As for the charge that he is weak. What I do not do is to take actions either because it is going to work politically or it is going to somehow, in the abstract, make America look tough or make me look tough. And maybe part of the reason is because every few months I go to Walter Reed and I see a 25-year-old kid who's paralyzed or has lost his limbs. And some of those are people I've ordered into battle. And so I can't afford uh, to play some of the political games that others may. The president connected the dots, adding that getting rid of ISIS and reclaiming their territory requires ending the Syrian civil war. That war, now nearly five years old, shows no sign of letting up anytime soon. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Let me just say that the recent developments in, in Germany, in, in Sweden, in Slovenia, and in other countries, all show with utmost clarity the huge pressure member states are facing. One day before the Friday massacre in Paris, desperate migrants already were facing new fences, new legal restrictions, and new police toughness at key borders on the continent as European Council President Donald Tusk on Malta summarized yet another summit to deal with what was already a crisis. 
hundreds of thousands seeking refuge from violence, danger, and deprivation in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and troubled nations of Africa, but raising fear and hostility across Europe. There were plans to better evaluate and process asylum claims, but also to stem the tide and make better preparation for repatriation. Then came the bomb blasts and gunfire in Paris, primarily by French and Belgian terrorists, but with a Syrian passport and a fingerprint suggesting at least one of the attackers came through Greece, escalating fear that violent extremists were mingling with the migrants. At the root of it all was the war in Syria and the extremist Islamic State, or ISIS, it spawned. Peace talks with Syria were stymied by insistence of new participants Russia and Iran that President Bashar al-Assad play at least a transitional role, a view vehemently rejected by his Syrian opposition, the United States, and its allies. Military efforts, meanwhile, were hampered by divided goals. Moderate militias fighting both ISIS and Assad forces, which Moscow and Tehran support, and stepped-up involvement by Turkey, targeting Kurdish separatists as well, even as other Kurdish forces have been most successful against the Islamic State. Also problematic, Washington's failure to build up the moderate militias and its reluctance to put more than largely symbolic special forces boots on the ground not to mention dramatic evidence that even local victories over ISIS on the battlefield can be overshadowed by terrorist counterstrikes it orders or inspires in Turkey, Lebanon, Egypt, now France, and ISIS warned the United States. To consider how all of this is shaping the migrant crisis now and going forward, we're joined by journalist, photographer, and World Policy Institute senior fellow Damaso Reyes, also a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Der Spiegel, and Time. His recent post on the WPJ blog is headlined, Europe's Revolving Door for Refugees. We spoke about it just hours before the Paris attack and consequent questions of a migrant connection. But Reyes addressed the already spreading fear of that possibility. Yeah, again, this is, um, this is something which the right and the far right um, loves to talk about. And even we hear it, uh, you know, in, in our own Republican uh, debate, especially among people like Donald Trump and, and Ted Cruz. But, you know, I, I think if you actually look to you actually ask security experts, um, you know, if you were an ISIS terrorist or an al-Qaeda terrorist, what the easiest way to get into Europe would be. It wouldn't be, you know, getting smuggled in a, in a leaky boat that might capsize. You know, if you really want to do terrorism and have the money and the means and the logistical support and the organization to do so, you're going to, you're going to take other routes. So I think it's, I, th I really think it's a red herring. And I think most serious security analysts who, when questioned on this, you know, you, you're not going to, you know, if you're a jihadist and you've got an actual plot, you're not going to put that plot at risk by trusting uh, a smuggler or, you know, taking your chances crossing a border, which you might then get arrested or get picked up on. These, these people are uh, going to be more sophisticated than that. Talk about the changing policy on refugees in Sweden and how it both reflects and likely shapes political response to the crisis elsewhere in Europe. Well, as I wrote about on the World Policy blog, uh, Sweden has, for the past few years, been known as a very generous and relatively welcoming state within Europe, um, giving relatively generous benefits and welcoming a 
relatively large share of refugees and asylum seekers relative to its population. Uh, and during the, when the Syrian crisis heated up two years ago, Sweden announced, much to many people's surprise, that any Syrian refugee uh, arriving in Sweden would get automatic permanent residence, which was unusual. And uh, as I said, many people found it surprising. And much to many people's dismay in Sweden and throughout Europe, the government announced that it would be putting in place in the future, in the near future, a plan which would essentially eliminate that permanent residence and give people who, Syrians and others who come to Sweden, a, a non-permanent or a temporary uh, residence. And so for the blog, I noted this shift and this transformation. And of course, this over the last two years, there have been lots of people coming to Sweden, both Syrian and from other places. And there's been a backlash, especially among the right and the far right in Sweden. And so this shift in government policy from many people's perspective was based upon a, a popular backlash or perceived popular backlash. I noted in my blog posting that this shift by the most liberal or what's perceived as the most liberal and the most generous country in Europe really gives an opening to other countries. And the blog was posted on Friday. And that afternoon, Germany, the interior ministry of Germany announced that Syrian refugees in the future would no longer be able to apply for asylum, that they would only be able to receive what's called subsidiary protection, which lasts a year, which allows the asylum seeker or the refugee, which they no longer would be, to stay for a year and could, in theory, be renewed. But they that, that person who's under that class of protection would receive fewer government benefits and would not be able to bring their families to reunite with them. Now, the government backed off of that policy, uh, after uh, much hubbub, but from what I'm from what I'm reading, and nobody knows quite sure where uh, the policy stands. Uh, apparently, the Interior Ministry uh, or some members of the government are are saying that yes, this policy, at least in some form, will be put into place. So, for me, uh, or, or for many viewers, the idea that Sweden sort of beginning to back off of its generosity would give cover to other countries. I, you know, I, I certainly thought that that process would be more extended, but it really seems as though it's accelerating. And whether or not Germany's uh, asylum policy uh, does change in the way that the Interior Ministry hinted in a trial balloon, what we have seen are prominent members of the government, most notably the finance minister, using words like avalanche and inundation and, and tidal wave when talking about uh, immigrants, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees. And I think, it, you know, during the course of our podcast, hopefully we'll parse out some of that language. But the idea is that there, you know, politicians and, and people in public life in Germany and throughout Europe are beginning to to set boundaries of, on how many people that they're willing to take and beginning to talk in language which seems to indicate that, that their patience and their ability to accept people is, is wearing thin. Well, let's talk more about that. How much of the opposition to asylum results simply from uh, the unexpected and overwhelming cost? Well, I, I, I think, you know, the, the language is important here. When we talk about overwhelming, um, you know, the, the European Union, the EU area has a GDP of $14 trillion. 
Uh, Germany has a budget of um, over a billion. Uh, Italy and France are all over, I mean, uh, not over a billion, over a trillion dollars. So when we talk about overwhelming, uh, it's important to sort of put things in perspective. Yes, there, have, there has been an influx and there has been an increase in the number of asylum seekers, especially in Germany. Uh, Germany is predicted to be accepting somewhere between the, uh, the number of 800,000 and a little over a million uh, asylum seekers, or at least that's the number of people who are expected to arrive. Not all of them will be accepted. Uh, and that's for a country that's roughly 80 million people. Uh, when we look further south and east, Turkey, with a population which is actually smaller than Germany, has taken over 2 million uh, refugees and asylum seekers from Syria alone. So, you know, it's, it's, and of course, you know, Turkey has a much smaller GDP and, and federal budget. So, it, yes, I think that a lot of the opposition is based upon this recent uh, increase in the numbers. But if you look historically at Europe's um, feelings towards refugees and asylum seekers, and I, and I worked on an article for World Policy Journal in 2010 looking at the Austrian asylum system, it's, it goes well uh, earlier. It, it, it's much less recent than we think it is. And the flip side of the expense is that uh, many of these European countries with aging populations actually look forward to an increased labor force to help support an aging population and to keep their economies going. Well, that's the, um, that's the irony here. It, one of the things that no, very few people, I won't say no one, because there are some very forward-thinking demographers and, and historians and sociologists that, you know, during the, the last Great Recession, uh, you know, you saw unemployment rates in certainly in the double digits uh, among youth in, in certain European countries like Greece or Italy or even Spain. You saw it reach, you know, reaching up towards the 50 percent mark. And so unemployment was seen as a huge problem in, in Europe. But that, be, that belies a demographic bomb, which has happened in, in Europe and is just about ready to explode where we've had um, low birth rates for over a generation, which means that, you know, obviously baby boomers and, and people are retiring. And in, in European welfare states, they have very generous retirement. They often have early retirement. And we have a, a shrinking workforce. So the, the since Europeans being well-educated and relatively wealthy are not having children, which is normal, uh, just look at Japan, for example. The only way to solve a demographic problem is to import people, which is actually what Germany did after World War II. And that's what, in some part, helped their economic miracle that they're so proud of. But as part of that uh, guest worker program that imported people from Europe and, of course, most notably people from Turkey, some of those people ended up staying and created a, a quote-unquote problem uh, from the perspective of many Germans of a minority population which wasn't well integrated. So on the one hand, Germany and other European nations absolutely need labor or certainly will need that labor uh, looking forward over the next 20 years. 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, many Germans and many Europeans don't like the idea of a large uh, population which is not uh, genetically and ethnically uh, similar to to themselves. And so, you know, from the last 10 years of me living and working and, and reporting from Europe, I think that the biggest challenge that Europe as a region faces is that of, of demography. And how do you bring in and assimilate people from different places because essentially if Europe is going to keep going as a, as a concern, it's going to need to, or it might go the way that Japan seems to be headed, which is a shrinking population, a shrinking economy, and, you know, shrinking importance in the world. And I haven't met very many Europeans who think that, you know, that's a good thing for Europe. What about conservative warnings that refugees have turned Sweden, as an example, into a new capital of drugs, rape, other crime? Well, as far as I can see, the, the, the statistics aren't there to support that argument. Uh, you see that, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, said that about Mexicans uh, coming across the border to the United States. I think um, it's a dog whistle which is used by the right and the far right around the world, saying that, you know, immigrants bring problems, immigrants bring crime, immigrants bring disease in, in some cases. And I think that the statistics aren't, aren't there. I think that um, what is true is that, you know, crime around the world is often linked to poverty. So when you do keep populations uh, in poverty, when you – is is the case in some European countries, restrict people's access to the labor market and give them very marginal amounts of money uh, to live on, there can, be, uh, there can be instances of increase in, in petty theft and, and break-ins and things like that. But looking, you know, looking at the, the Swedish uh, Crime Bureau's latest statistics and numbers, there don't seem to be any appreciable uh, uptick in numbers. In fact, uh, over the past few years, there have been, there have been a decrease in, in crime. So I think it's important to, you know, when claims like that are made is to, to ask where the, where the proof is. And, and, you know, anecdotal, uh, research is one thing, but actually looking at the numbers of thefts and rapes and, and drug related crimes, uh, when we look at that, certainly specifically in Sweden, I don't think there's the, the actual proof to, to back up those claims. Do you think that those fleeing Syria today are any less likely than refugees of the past to seek permanent lives in Europe? Many seem so truly eager to go home once it's safe. Well, you know, I think what we see and from the research that I've done and, and the people that I've talked to, I think what we often see in, in refugee crisis, crises is in the first year or two, a strong desire to, to return home. I think that's natural, and I think that's very human. I think the longer you stay anywhere, uh, the more likely it is you'll want to, you'll want to stay there. And, you, you know, you may have had children. You may have intermarried into that culture. Your children may have been going to school there. I think one thing that um, many refugees find when they do come to Europe is, relatively stable societies where there's rule of law, where there's a lot less corruption, where to varying degrees there are opportunities for them to succeed and, and to integrate even. And so I think, you know, at, 
at this moment, it's you, you talk to a Syrian refugee who's you know been in Germany or Luxembourg or Sweden for six months, and they very well may say, you know, if I could go home tomorrow, I would. You talk to that same person in three or four years, uh, you may get a different answer. And that's assuming that this crisis ends anytime soon. I mean, sometimes one of the problems is um, when the immediate danger, when the war, the civil war is over, people may be going home to neighborhoods or whole cities which are destroyed, where there is no infrastructure. So you're actually asking people to go back to someplace which is, even if their lives are not in immediate danger, their quality of life and their standard of life and their prospects for the future are going to be much lower than if they stayed. And I'm sure that's in the minds of many European policymakers, which is why the focus is very much on preventing people from getting into Europe in the first place. And as you've reported before, the asylum decision process in Europe uh, can be so slow that it, in fact, uh, uh, reinforces uh, the putting down of roots just because uh, people are in limbo for so long. That's correct. You know, in my, my research in Austria, I met and interviewed people who had been waiting for as initial asylum hearings for half a decade or more. So when you're somewhere for five, six, seven, eight, ten years, you begin to live your life. If you're allowed to work, you begin work. If, uh, if you have children, you begin sending them to school. So you might, you know, show up in a place like Austria or Germany with a one-year-old, and then six years later or seven years later, you go into a courtroom and have to, in, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, explain why you should be allowed to stay. Well, you've been building your life based upon the idea that you're going to stay. And so uprooting that has real consequences both for the refugee and also for the society in which they have become a part of. What did you think of the rhetoric and the 17-page action plan, so-called, uh, that came out of the Malta Summit on Migration? First, as they may impact those fleeing extremism and violence in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Well, you know, there's a joke about international organizations which says they respond to crises by crafting uh, strongly worded memos. And to, to, from, from my observation, this falls into that category. I think there's, you know, some good ideas in, in the Malta Declaration, but a lot of it will not address what's happening now and what's going to be happening over the next year. Their language is by the end of next year, we will have put into place X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, that's 14 months, you know, or 12 months away. What's going to happen in the interim? I don't think that's going to do very much to stem the current flow of people who are at risk. Um, this document seems very much focused, at least in, in my observation, on preventing the flows of economic migrants which, of course, Europe has long been, uh, in, my, in my opinion, unfairly concerned about. But it's not really going to do much to, to help people who are fleeing Boko Haram in West Africa or ISIL affiliates in North Africa or, or the Middle East, for that matter. And so I think that the actual impact of the document and the, the pledges which are made are going to be relatively small. And if you look at the, the pot of money which has been pledged, again, relative to the size of 
the economies of European countries. These are, I mean, a drop in a bucket is, a, is, is an understatement, as well as, you know, these countries in which they're directing this aid to and, and trying to partner with, in some cases are incredibly unstable because of the threat of, of organizations like Boko Haram and, and ISIS, but are also very corrupt. So how do you even know that the money that you're sending to these countries are actually going to do the things that you want to do? I think that, you know, what's frustrating as an observer and as a journalist and someone who's, you know, spent a lot of time talking with um, economic migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, and they are distinct categories, um, there is no European-wide immigration plan. There's no policy. There's no, there's no thoughtful response to the idea that there are people who want to come and they want to work in Europe and they want to make money. And that there's actually a need in Europe for labor. There's no idea that, you know, let's come together as a European community and figure out a way to uh, meet the needs of both Europeans and people from outside of Europe who, who want to come and want to work. That having been said, there's also not a European-wide asylum policy. Different countries have different uh, standards. They have different uh, rates in, in terms of how much money you'll get or what kind of services you'll provide. So, you know, there are certain countries now where they won't deport you back to because the standards are seen and recognized as being so low that you're actually put at risk being deported back to that country. And that country exists in Europe. And for me, one of the, one of the strange, it's not strange. I mean, I understand why they're not trying to, to solve this problem, but it's still, you look at the crisis and you look at, uh, which is in part, you know, Europe, Europe created this crisis. And I'm kind of surprised that there aren't more leaders standing up. Some critics say establishing a $2 billion trust fund to facilitate repatriation by easing costs for Afri African countries and boosting their economic development amounts to blackmail or at least bribery. What's your view on that? Um, if it is a bribe, it's a pretty small one. Um, I, think this is a, I think this is a gesture, and I think it's a fig leaf. Um, I don't think it's where Europe should be spending its money and spending its resources. We, you know, there are literally people every day drowning in the Mediterranean. I think that $2 billion could be much better spent uh, rescuing those people and also providing places in these last departure countries. So in a place like Morocco, in a place like Libya, in a, in a place like Turkey, providing places where people could register as asylum seekers. Let's get these people on planes and trains to their countries of destinations. Now, I can't imagine that that would be an incredibly popular idea politically, but at the same time, we're talking about children drowning in the sea. And when, you know, that, that young Syrian boy washed up on the shore, people's hearts broke as they should. But nobody said, you know what, this is crazy. There, we know there are people coming. We know they are going to come. Let's set up a safe system for people to come to Europe. Nobody, none of the European leaders responded with that. And um, I think that's a real failure. I think that, you know, 
you know, future generations are going to look back at this crisis and they're going to shake their heads that these liberal democracies who pride themselves on their progressive uh, versions of democratic capitalism just really refuse to, to step up to the plate here. The only reason in, in, in this journalist's opinion, and I think in the opinion of many other observers, both in and outside of Europe, that Angela Merkel in, in Germany has, quote unquote, stepped up is because they were dealing with facts on the ground. They, they had hundreds of thousands of people in their country. When those hundreds of thousands of people were in Greece and Italy, Germany said, yeah, you know, we should, we should do something. We should have a conference. We should have a talk. When those hundreds of thousands of people started showing up at their border, they said, we need a plan. We should distribute some of these people. We can't let all the burden fall on some countries. And that's, you know, that's a remarkable shift, but it's a shift that's really based on self-interest and not on any kind of, uh, you know, wonderful liberal progressive principle, at least from, from my point of view. Damaso Reyes, thank you. Thank you so much. Journalist, photographer, and World Policy Institute senior fellow Damaso Reyes is also a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Der Spiegel, and Time. His recent post on the WPJ blog is headlined, Europe's Revolving Door for Refugees. Also featured in the WPJ Fall Issues Food Fight section, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, on proposals for preventing today's massive food waste and loss, and on nationalism, cuisine, and controversy. And listen next week when our podcast presents new WPJ blog columnist Jonathan Power, along with the International Herald Tribune, on best tactics and strategy to combat ISIS. Hint. His debut post on the website is headlined, Bombing the Islamic State is Not the Answer. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>